Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Alex Plitzis, are you there joining us right now from Fairfield? Hello, Alex. Welcome to the show today. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. So, Alex... um, Mr. Encryption, by the way, you have the distinction of being the first guest on my show and all the guests in 16 years whose show prep was encrypted. I'm just saying. Um, and so, right? Okay. So, uh, Alex, tell us a little bit about you and about what you're doing right now for people who are left behind in Afghanistan. What is going on? Sure. It's actually it's been off the news for quite some time. So a lot of folks uh, you know, have moved on, obviously, because it's not something that's in front of their face every day. But when the airlift ended, we had about 76,000 Afghans who came to the United States and about an equal number that went to allied countries. Um, it was very dramatic scenes. It was all over the news and then it kind of dissipated. And most folks are not aware that there's still in terms of the interpreters and their families alone, about 165,000 people left behind. So about uh, 75,000 that are principal applicants, and then the rest of them are immediate family members, wives or husbands, and children under 21. And that doesn't count the base workers and everyone else. So that number then jumps by about another 100,000. So you're looking at somewhere between 150 and 250,000 people that remain left in Afghanistan. Um, the economy's closed, right? So the, uh, the banking system's closed. There are, there are sanctions. Uh, the, the country's landlocked. The land borders are effectively closed with neighboring countries not giving passports or accepting refugees or visas for that matter, um, and it's become a difficult, arduous process to eventually get to the United States. So, uh, I mean, at the height of our operations over the last year and a half, we were hiding, feeding, and taking care of about 10,000 people across the country. Um, and in the fall of 21, uh, we were running flights for the State Department itself. So, uh, effectively, the U.S. military airlift ended. There was nobody on the ground who was able to help because there was no U.S. government personnel or anything else. And the Qatari government had yet uh, to step up at that point. They were just they were getting wound up to help. So uh, my organization uh, was five, six of us, I would say, and the executive staff and then probably another 100 volunteers um, just basically came together in August of 21. We all met remotely through encrypted chat apps and of us knew each other. And then we built out the infrastructure and we figured it out. Never run flights in my life before. Never figured out uh uh, processes for takeoff and landing clearances, manifest approval, chartering aircraft, let alone behind enemy lines in a war zone. But uh, we figured it out. And so it's been uh, been a pretty wild 18 months. Alex, I need to hear about you. I know we both went to Hopkins. I think you got your master's there. I was undergrad. 
What brought you to this place where you felt so passionately about Afghanistan? Did you work for the U.S. government? Oh, yeah. So background-wise, I mean, I grew up in Mamaroneck in Westchester. Uh, I was a junior member of the department there and then a volunteer, uh, you know, when I turned 18. Um, like a kid who didn't know any better, I decided I was going to go wandering down to the Trade Center in the days afterwards as a 16-year-old junior member of the department. Had absolutely no business being there whatsoever. Which department? Was, Wait, which department? Uh, sure, Village Mamaroneck in Westchester. In, uh, but in which, de- which department of the village when you said department? I'm sorry, the fire department. I fire department. I, I okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no, no business being down at the trade center whatsoever afterwards, but uh, kind of gave me some, you know, some perspective and then went to school in D.C. Um, and there was a, a kid who stopped just short of saying that we had deserved that based on our foreign policy. And, of course, I'm getting ready to jump the desk. The professor steps in and breaks it up. And the kid said, all right, tough guy, if you feel so strongly about it, why don't you sign up? And I went, you know, quiet. And he was right. So I went back to the dorms, had a beer, Army commercial came on, and he called the recruiter who said, let me get this straight. You haven't been arrested. You haven't done any drugs. You have you graduated from high school. You've got a scholarship to college, and you want to voluntarily enlist in Army Special Operations. I said, yes. He said, I'll be there in 30 minutes. Don't call anybody. So that wow. was every Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Saturday morning picked me up, and I swore in. And then after my freshman year, I left for basic and advanced training, uh, went into the reserves, into psychological operations, uh, graduated, and I was supposed to commission in the reserves uh, through a direct commission program, uh, and then my unit got to lead for the surge in Iraq. So I ended up in Iraq uh, in uniform fighting uh, all of 2008, uh, including the Battle of Sadr City. So it was the third battle scene in American Sniper. Um, I came home, uh, went to go work for an organization that uh, was designed to defeat the roadside bombs, which is the leading you know, threat to U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so our job was to basically go after the bomb makers and supply chains. So I spent about six months you know, night after night going after the bomb makers and, and subverting the supply chains and then came back, went to go work for the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and in some strategic intelligence programming. And that's where I ended up in Afghanistan in 2012. So I finished up my federal service after that um, as the chief of sensitive activities in the office of the Secretary of Defense. So I had hostage rescue, counterweapons of mass destruction, some of our sensitive tech programs and information operations. And then about 2015 or so, uh, I got a call to... Uh, Come interview for a job up here in Connecticut at a company called Bridgewater Associates. So I spent some time there. And then uh, for the last six years or so, I've been uh, running a consulting practice uh, uh, doing aerospace defense and, and electronics after running operations for a company for about two years or so. So I just turned 38, uh, live here in Fairfield, two, uh, two beautiful kids, and uh, been a chubby suburban dad. And then lo and behold, in August of 21, I kind of got pulled off the bench. Oh, for lack wow. of a better term. And when you say you got pulled off the bench, were you pulled off the bench or did you get up off of your own bench because you saw the commercials and you saw the news and you said, hold on a second, something's not smelling right? I actually kind of got pulled in. and I know that sounds strange. Um, you know, I'd been, I was a, the town chairman here in Fairfield, still involved with state politics to a certain extent. And so I'd kind of left the national security space. I was on vacation in Italy. It doesn't sound much more bougie. It was down in uh on the southern Italian coast, and everything started collapsing. And an interpreter reached out to me via Twitter because I had put out a message uh, on Twitter and said, hey, if you need help, you know, let me know. And he reached out and he said, hey, Captain Alex, you know, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, we work together. I need you to save me. I said, look, I wasn't your captain. I wasn't even in Afghanistan the year that you're talking about. But I was able to vet the paperwork. And I said, all right, you know, I'll, I'll figure this out. So I called some friends in the special forces community who vouched for the interpreter. Um, and then, you know, his paperwork was cleared. And so uh, I was able to kind of talk him through getting from Kandahar up to Kabul 
and then he was up there kind of hiding out for a bit. I ran into Rosa Delora at the airport because now I was traveling back home. So in Rome, uh, you know, everybody had masks on. It was COVID. And I look about 100 yards away, and I see a five-foot-something woman with a mask right. on, and I see a purple, purple streak of hair. I'm like, that's got to be Rosa. <laughs> so I walked up and said, you know, Congresswoman, uh, you know, I'm Alex. I'm the chairman of Fairfield. I need you to listen to this voicemail the interpreter left me um, in which he basically said, look, they shut up my house. They threatened to kill me. They called me a son of Biden. They were going to, you know, cut my head off. And because um, at that point, the news was, you know, making it sound like you just get to the airport and things are fine. So I wanted somebody close to the administration uh, from the delegation to hear what had happened. So um, got on a United flight back home from uh, Rome to Newark, and then I connected to the plane's Wi-Fi. So I was still basically handling him over the Atlantic. I uh, was able to get his family, wow. get that movement started to get them up uh, towards Kabul. And then some uh, – uh, government, some, I guess, agency officers I used to work with from uh, back in the day were manning the gate. There was a special gate at the airport that the CIA had run at one point. Uh, this is all over and done with now, so there's no, nothing sensitive in that sense. Um, and so I was able to get a hold of a couple of guys I worked with and was able to get him and his family into the airport. And that was the first clue I had that I could somehow be somewhat helpful. And um, <clears throat> a group had formed that eventually became known as Digital Dunkirk in an encrypted chat room. Basically, people started adding folks that they knew who would be helpful. And at one point, it grew to about 800 of us uh, that were national security professionals, either current or former diplomats, intelligence professionals, special operations. And, you know, in that room, it sort of started with a, you know, you know, can you help me get my interpreter out? So there's, you know, 750 people asking for help getting their turf out. About 50 people actually had the ability to do stuff on the ground. I had gate access, and then I'm reading through the chats, and I'm seeing, you know, at Safi, at Joy, two other folks I work with now, safe housing, transportation, food and medicine. I'm like, you know what? Between all of us, we've got a complete integrated supply chain here to get people out. So we formed a little side chat. Um, they had formed an organization, like, the day before that I had joined. Um, and then just basically rapidly, uh, one of the partners, Joy, she's brilliant. She scaled the tech around the Afghan-Americans that we work with uh, so that we went from a single-person capability with a cell phone to a ticketing and tracking system that took in data for 10,000 people overnight. And uh, so then we ended up, you know, renting or leasing property, dispatching vehicles kind of across the country. And before the airport ended, the operation, we ended up bringing about 6,000 people to the airport, 1,000 Americans and 5,000 Afghans uh, allies. Uh, and then the airlift ended. And I thought we were kind of done. You know, there was a lot of dramatic moments. It included four underage kids uh, who had been separated from their parents, um, Father died. Mother was uh, in uh, in New York fighting for custody. And mm -hmm. so we were able to get them finally through the agency out and reunited with mom. And that all happened due to uh, Jake Tapper at CNN. He was great uh, in terms of making the connection. Wow. So the airlift ends on the 31st. And I'm like, okay, we're done. And my partner, Joy, looks at me. She goes, no, we have 10,000 people in safe housing. No, we're not done. And so um, we said, okay. Um, Got a hold of the National Security Advisor uh, through some contacts. I spoke to Jake Sullivan and said, hey, you know, we have the majority of the Americans left in country. Uh, they need to get out. Um, and he said, we heard there's a meeting with the government and some folks who have been involved in this work. And so he passed me off to the chief of staff of the State Department, who uh, is incredibly kind. Both of them were, by the way, just to be clear. Um, and we got into that first meeting. So on uh, September 12th of 21, so about 12 days after the airport ended, 22 of us met mostly former Green Berets and intelligence professionals um, with the State Department and the Department of Defense in, in Washington, just outside the Pentagon. And so that uh, meeting kind of started off this relationship uh, that is now fostered into what's known as a coalition. So it's the Afghan EVAC coalition. There are several thousand volunteers and several hundred groups that have been working night and day, literally since August of 21. Most people, you know, dump their savings, 
I mean, collectively, I think we've all spent probably somewhere around $100 million. Uh, oh food, goodness. water, medicine, transportation, housing. Yeah, because, I mean, the folks that are left, they have to go through a process to get a visa. And the only way that works is the background checks, and then they need an interview, and they need all kinds of other stuff. That takes a while, and there's no U.S. government personnel on the ground in Afghanistan. So in the interim, the economy's closed. They can't get wow. jobs. They're starving. They're freezing. Yeah. And so somebody's got to help them in between. And so that's really what we've been up to you know, over the last year and a half or so. Alex Plitzis, this is this is a this is a movie. I mean, has it been optioned yet? I mean, it's it's incredible what you're doing. When you when you ran Not into yet. Rosa Deloro, did she help you? Did she connect you with some of the strings you needed? Was that a helpful thing? Rosa was able to get a hold of folks in the administration and kind of make them aware of what was going on. She also was flying back early because the uh, the storm that was about to hit. So she was able to make that call, which was great. I think the politician who was probably the most helpful here in Connecticut. Um, in two different ways. Actually, that's not true. I mean, Governor Lamont actually put together an amazing task force here to help resettle people, which was great, mm-hmm. and brought together uh, like a public-private partnership to do that. And the state has successfully settled you know, hundreds of folks here, um, you know, kind of sharing the burden across the states with everyone coming. So the, the governor and his staff were amazing there. But Senator Blumenthal has been, uh, I can't tell you, just absolutely incredible. I have never seen a politician who works that hard in my entire life. Now, I sit on the other side of the aisle, so obviously we don't talk policy, um, but he's got the energy of a 30-year-old. He is the hardest working, most underestimated politician in the state. Um, I mean, at one point, one of my partners had been, you know, had gone back over twice into Afghanistan immediately after the withdrawal to get things settled. He'd actually been taken by the Talibs on some false charges that ended up getting cleared. And while he was in prison, um, we're helping to coordinate his release with government officials and the folks on the ground there. In the background, I used to have hostage rescue as part of my portfolio. And at one point, we needed some action out of the administration or were worried that there was going to be a delay in the process to get him released that required some action on the U.S. side. No policy concessions, nothing along those lines. Um, and it seemed to be stuck. And so it was a weekend. Uh, you know, I texted Dick and I said, hey, Senator, you know, we've got an issue. You know, we could use some help. Responded immediately, immediately hopped on the phone with cabinet officials, got the logjam cleared. And after 105 days, we were able to get him out of prison. Uh, him, wow. uh, one of our other partners, and eventually another five Brits and another couple of Americans. So, yeah, successfully helped about 10 folks get out of detention over the last year and a half. And again, um, Senator Blumenthal has just been absolutely incredible. And it's important because I don't think people realize you said that you were the chair in Fairfield, but you were the chair of the Republican Town Committee, the RTC, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So when you say, I, I find it interesting that you just said, Alex, that when you, you know, you don't talk, quote unquote, policy. But the truth is, right, you're working together toward a very common humanitarian end, which, yes. which is, which is, which is American with a small and a capital A, right? I mean, it's where all 100%. of us should be coming together, right? 100%. No, that's entirely accurate. And sorry, so what I meant not talking policy, I meant none of the... Uh, the stuff that would be, uh, you know, partisan dribble or drama. This was, as you said, this is real. This is American. This isn't a partisan issue. This is a moral one. So I meant like we didn't devolve into, you know, partisan policy discussions. Like you said, this is about the credibility of our nation and people's safety. Right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And ha- and so this group that you've assembled, this coalition, is this like a nonprofit or is this just a loose coalition of people who find out about it and want to help you and then give of their time and their money or whatever they can do? Actually, it's a great question. So the Afghan EVAC Coalition is run and founded by a gentleman named Sean Van Diver. So he, we're a constituent member, my, my group, my organization. And when I say my, I mean, there's, there's five or six of us kind of at the helm and, you know, the core of that. There's a smaller you know, kind of group of us. So we are constituent members of that group. Yes, we are a registered 501c3 both in the United States and, believe it or not, the first NGO registered in Afghanistan as a 501c3 as well to be able to do work there because we actually uh, we ended up doing some medical clinics and other stuff after the earthquakes last year. So we're still engaged in other humanitarian relief efforts as well. When the people come here from Afghanistan... Um, you know, some of them are interpreters, which means they speak relatively good English, but their family may not. Have you been keeping in touch with them, Alex, here? How are they doing? Yes, I speak to a number of them on a daily basis to connect. It's actually funny. The first interpreter I told you about, um, you know, they handled over the Atlantic kind of getting him in. He settled in Houston. His kids are in school. They're doing exceptionally well. Their English is phenomenal. He's got a job now. He works uh, corporate for the YMCA. And his job is actually to help with their resettlement programs. Okay. So no less than two weeks ago, I was able to get another interpreter legally out, you know, through through Pakistan and won't get any more there. And then eventually, you know, to the United States via the State Department, um, uh, you know, through, you know, the, the visa process that has to happen. Anyway, so he landed in Houston and uh, the guy that helped him uh, resettle and get settled was the first interpreter we got out a year and a half ago. So mm. it's finally come full circle. Yes. And, and do the people feel as they're trying to settle in and, you know, every immigrant community does a, a dance between keeping to their own customs and traditions and feeling comfortable living amongst their own people. We all do this as ethnicities. And then on the other hand, wanting their kids to assimilate and be part of the American dream and absorb and contribute to American culture. How are they doing with that here? Excellent question. So a lot of the folks who served as interpreters or wanted to leave they had our shared values anyway. They wanted to live in a free democratic society. They wanted women to be able to work, their daughters to go to school. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're good, proud Muslims and ethnic Afghans, right, as we would be as, you know, Italian Catholics or, you know, you know Jews from Europe or wherever our backgrounds have to come from, in my case, a combination of all of that, right? Um, yep. It's the same for them, like you mentioned, like all of us, you know, cling to a certain extent to our great-grandparents' heritage or wherever the generation it was you came right. over. Um, but we assimilated and became Americans, as you said, and, and I'm watching that happen now. And I'm watching, you know, my father was born in Greece. So I'm a first-generation immigrant on that side. And, you know, I don't speak Greek at all because mm. it was, you know, hey, coming to America, we're going to learn the language, and that's the right. way that this works. 
Right. And I'm seeing a very similar approach. So where they may speak, uh, you know, Pashto at home or Dari at home, uh, you know, that's a matter of convenience, you know, for maybe one of the parents who doesn't work. And, you know, if only one was an interpreter, doesn't speak the language. But otherwise, the kids are, their English is better than the parents who worked for years as interpreters now. I mean, they are right. assimilating very, very quickly. Um, I mean, the first interpreter, two of his kids now have already enrolled in college in a technical school. They've already started building applications. One of them is about to be purchased, uh, going to end up in the app store. I mean, they're just they're here and they're on fire in terms of, you know, getting assimilated, getting in the job market, contributing. And then on top of that, you know, it's still entry level jobs in many cases where they're not making a lot of money. They're still taking time out to cook uh, for and helping to resettle other people, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which is incredible. Yeah. You must feel so good about what you're doing, Alex, right? You must feel so good about it. You know, it's something I would expect and hope somebody would do if it was for my family if the situation was the other way around. You know, you kind of you joked before about it being a movie. Um, you know, I just want to make sure this thing doesn't end as a horror film. You know what I mean? Not going to end as a horror film. Done. You're changing lives every single day. You're not, you know, here's the thing. When you get involved in this kind of work, it to some extent is a bottomless pit. You understand, Alex, you're not going to be able to save everybody, right? Yeah, or, or die trying. <laughs> but you're going to die trying. That's the spirit. That that's what it is. That's the spirit. Yeah, we don't we don't leave anybody behind. As Americans, right? Those that's part of our 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 American identity, right? We don't leave anybody behind on the field of battle. And we made a commitment to these folks legally through the Special Immigration Visa Act that John McCain and others have to pass. It said, hey, if you render a year of honorable service and you pass a background check, right, no ties to anybody you shouldn't have, everything else then you've earned the right to come to the United States and earn your place in American society and have an opportunity for your kids to grow up here. And for many of those people, that's not being realized right now. And bureaucratic inertia and the situation as it is with no you know, diplomatic facilities on the ground and no regular air movement of any kind, um, that dream is not being fulfilled for them. And so you know, it's going to sound kind of ridiculous, but we all kind of sat around and said, look, you know, if the government's not going to be able to figure this out right away, um, you know, then we're going to step in and help. Um, and I think that was the other piece that was kind of strange because folks would say, you know, how did you guys kind of do that? Mm-hmm. So in my last role in government and so a couple of my partners, we had access to most of our, you know, sensitive programs across the government because of the positions that we were in. So we knew what programmatics, funding, authorities, uh, legal restrictions, uh, you know, ability to move things, money, et cetera, looked like, and then how long it would take to set that up from scratch if it didn't exist. And after some very quick conversations with former colleagues at, you know, State Department, CIA, Department of Defense, there was nobody left behind. Like there is, you know, if you watch news overseas, they're always blaming the CIA for everything. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. There's literally nobody left. So at that point, we said, okay, we know that they're going to probably be able to get planes in, but, you know, somehow or be able to get commercial. But who's going to be able to take care of the peace on the ground to help people, right. food, right. water, medicine, transportation? And we said, you know what? It's going to take them four to six weeks to figure out what they need and then even longer to try to get it together. Let's just build it now. Dump 401Ks for about $6 million, raise another five build out the infrastructure, get it set, and then basically, you know, get back to the government. And so there was kind of a, a funny, dramatic moment in October of 21. Um, a flight had been scheduled by somebody else. The aircraft they tried to charter was under sanctions because they didn't know what they were doing. It wasn't malicious or anything. So we said, okay, we had to get a new aircraft. <clears throat> then come to find out, you know, all the Americans who've now got down at the airport, um, and the plane hadn't been cleared to take off. And so it was a very late night phone call at the State Department. We're like, look, if this plane doesn't leave, you know, these Americans are going to be stuck and we don't know what's going to happen. And states said, all right, well, uh, you know, and that's really where we started working together as partners. And uh, all of those Americans were able to safely leave the country. And then from there, we were able to demonstrate that we could work on the ground there successfully. 
and that was kind of the start of the relationship with, uh, with the government. But here's what I don't understand. We're chatting with Alex Plitzis, and then I'll let you go. But I don't really understand this piece. If this is sure. closed to the Taliban, right, the Taliban is closed off the country, and there's no way for Americans to be there, who is helping, who is ushering these people from place to place to get them out? Are they now flying to Qatar or Qatar, whatever, and then we're getting them from there? Like, like what are they doing? How are you getting them out now? How, what are they doing? It's a great point. So, so the country itself isn't closed off by the Talibs. I mean, it's closed off by everybody else for the most part for being under sanctions. You can still fly into the country, right? You can get a visa at the embassies and do that. Okay. I didn't um, know that. Americans okay. – yeah, Americans and American citizens uh, and, and green card holders can get on a commercial flight and fly out of the country. They're not going to stop you from doing that. They're not out there attacking Americans in that sense. It's the Afghans who work for us as allies who have no pathway out right now because there's right. – I mean, when I say right. no, that's an exaggeration. There is a pathway. It's just taking forever at this point. And, you know, the State Department gets a bad rap for this, but they're the executive department or agency that's responsible for this. I mean, pick, just picture this for a second. August 31st, military has gone. Somebody looks at the State Department and says, hey, there's a quarter of a million people trapped behind enemy lines in a collapsed war zone with no airlift capability inside the State Department, and none of you have compartmented planning experience. Mm. But congratulations. Go figure this out. Go and so they still out. had to go right. ahead and do that. Okay. Yeah. And so they're bound by policy and law, and that's really what the issue is. We need some, some legal changes for the adjustment of status for the folks who are here and then some expansion for the SIV program to get some of those people who were caught in the gray area. Uh, who really deserved to be here and for the way the law was written can't. So that's the last piece, and then hopefully some additional throughput uh, from the government to get more people out. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to do whatever we can to help them and support the government uh, if and when it's appropriate. You know, Alex, we're chatting with Alex Plitzis from Fairfield. We have this segment that we're going to go to right after I say goodbye to you called The Kindness of Strangers. But this entire past 20 minutes might have well have been an example of that. After all, you really are strangers to all of these people. And look at this unbelievably big heart that you have. It's really something. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to know you, even though on the air I'd like to meet you in person one day. Because I'm so impressed with your love of country and love of human beings. I don't know where people like you come from. Uh, Fairfield. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, but you know, but you know, I hate to say, but you know, you're an outlier, right? I mean, people like you who devote themselves and their time and their money to saving strangers. Uh, if we had more people like you, we would have a far better world. But I'm glad to know you. I'm one of several thousands. There's a lot of people working hard. We got more work to do, but I, I really appreciate it, Lisa. We got that all all due to teamwork. I mean, there is not a thing, single thing I accomplished where I can even use the word I accomplish. I mean, it's all been teamwork. And without my teammates, we all brought a unique, different, you know, ability or skill set to the table, access to government, this, that, you know, uh, building, scaling companies in tech overnight. Uh, I mean, you name it. And if we weren't all together, it wouldn't have happened. So, I mean, this wouldn't have even been possible 15 years ago. This is the result of the manifestation of the evolution of warfare and technology. And if, again, 15, 20 years ago, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, but, you know, here we are. So we're going to keep doing what we can. When, well, how can people reach you or aid in any way if they want to help you? How, what would be the best way to find you to do that? Sure. So we, uh, we are a registered uh, 501c3, both in the United States, like I said, in, uh, and in Afghanistan. Our website is humanfirstcoalition.org, spelled out the whole way. Uh, we do have the ability to receive uh, funds there uh, for charitable donations if anybody is willing to do so. Um, and we don't have any overhead in terms of that. We don't have any paid staff. Uh, everybody's a volunteer at this point. So 
uh, the money is basically going to go to to help to programs to help those overseas. We will have uh, we'll have a big announcement about some uh, a new initiative that we've launched probably around the first week of February or so, and uh, I think people will be surprised. Um, so stay tuned. There'll be more to share with you, Lisa. Thank you, Alex. Please come on the show and definitely keep sharing with us. And God bless you, really. Alex puts us on the Lisa Wexler Show. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com.